So just strategically, um, the government was getting bad advice. The ministers were getting bad advice. I think in in retrospect, uh, you know, it's it's easy to point fingers, and and but it's also in some ways important. I'm joined today by Matthew Lesh, who's the head of research at the Adam Smith Institute, which is one of the world's most influential think tanks. He's also a widely cited commentator and recently authored a book called Democracy in a Divided Australia. Um, So, Matthew, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. I think you're the first person who's appeared on the show twice, so it's an honour for you, I imagine. Uh, I am deeply honoured, but also <laughs> deeply worried about the, the quality of this podcast. Yeah, exactly. This, having, this massively having brings twice. it up. Um, all right, so we last spoke around about the beginning of February, and since then... How the world changes, yeah. It's absolutely crazy. So, yeah, I mean, back then, really, we didn't... We'd heard... I guess we'd heard about coronavirus in the back of our minds, I guess. It was like a, a news story about China, but what's happened in those three months has been pretty much almost unbelievable. If I hadn't lived through it, it would be hard to imagine it had actually happened. Uh, which yeah. I probably wanted to get you on because you've written a lot about it and you seem to be expert in certain areas. So, I mean, it's hard to even know where to begin with this really, but why don't we start with, I know something you, you recently wrote a report looking at the testing situation because something people have spoken a lot about is the differences in mortality rates between different countries. And people are obviously really struggling to find out why it is that some places seem to be so much more successful at keeping it down. Um, and often people cite the testing situation as one possible explanation for it or a contributory factor. So can you give me an outline of what your report is saying and what your arguments are? Sure. I mean, the world the world has changed, and I'm, I'm not going to claim any great foresight. I, I, I think, like most, I didn't perceive this to be uh, the, the biggest issue in the world. And I think a big part of that actually um, does come back to the way this pandemic developed and and what we saw so what we saw from from china and i think we can really trust the statistics out of china but we saw it looked like it was pretty rapidly contained that was step one and then step two uh, we saw countries like hong kong uh taiwan uh singapore all with early cases but this ability to have very relatively few and then very few deaths and i think that actually um, really gave us a false sense of security about this virus. Um, and what we didn't understand at the time, I think we're increasingly coming to understand, this is where testing is a big part of the story, is that they had just a, a fundamentally different strategy um, and, a, and a different state capacity to in, basically implement that strategy. Um, in, in many ways, this comes back um, to the fact that they had a huge warning for this. They had SARS. Um, yeah. I don't think we can underestimate just the psychological impact of SARS on someone like Hong Kong or Singapore or South Korea, who did an extraordinary amount of preparatory work to ensure that if there was a future outbreak, because they said to themselves, you know, this isn't the first outbreak that's come out of these wet markets in China. This is a huge risk. We're, we're very close to these countries. We need to have a good strategy in place. And a huge part of that strategy was this sense in which we are going to track and find every single case. So I was looking back through this, and at the start of January, even before China admitted to human-to-human transmission, uh, Singapore had a strategy in place that said, uh, we're going to start identifying people who 
come in with a pneumonia or, or an unexpected respiratory issue. And we're going to start developing our, our case definition, which we're going to send an alert out to all our hospitals and all our doctors and all our, our, our healthcare facilities. And we're going to say, this is something to watch out for. Now that, that happened on, on January 2. This, this, was, this was extremely early. And then they very rapidly developed tests. Now, admittedly, the UK did the same. The UK was very fast to develop a test. But the difference in strategy with the UK was, and, and we saw this kind of explicitly outlined by the government when they started talking about containment and then delay phases. Um, containment phase was something that basically said, we're going to try to find the early cases and we're going to try to track those cases. And that worked for a little bit. But it turns out we just didn't have the testing capacity to do that. And yeah. the essential reason why we didn't have that testing capacity, and this has been my focus uh, from a public policy perspective, is this decision to centralise testing initially in a single facility, uh, Public Health England um, lab in, in, in London, and then this hesitancy uh, of the bureaucracy to extend that out. So initially, one facility, it wasn't until about February 10, they started involving other Public Health England facilities, there's about a dozen labs um, run by public health authorities. At that point, they said they could maximum do a 1,000 tests a day, um, which at the time seemed like enough, but in retrospect was nowhere near enough to be able to track everybody who could potentially get the virus. Uh, Singapore spotted very quickly that three-quarters of the cases, the first 100 cases they had, didn't come internationally from travellers. They came from domestic transmission, which was basically similar that domestic transmission is a big issue. But the, the reality is if, if you came down in February with like a, a flu-like symptom, you hadn't recently been to China, there's no way you'd get a test. Yeah. Uh, there's no way you'd know that you need to isolate. Uh, so you were more likely to go out and spread that, particularly with something like COVID-19 that has, we now know has a three, four, five day asymptomatic period. So we weren't testing people broadly. We weren't isolating. Uh, we allowed this, this effectively this huge outbreak to spread. Um, and I, I was looking back, there's a document about the 26th of February when Public Health England said, well, there's no evidence of a community transmission in the UK. Um, yeah. In retrospect, an epidemiological impossibility. There yeah. was spread at that point. It was clearly, um, in order for the number of cases and deaths we saw into, into early March, there's no way there wasn't community spread in February. So the NHS, uh, sorry, sorry, the public health thing centralised it. They only started to let uh, NHS labs do it when it, weeks later into late February, March, and still um, even into late March, they, they weren't letting the private sector do the testing. Yep. They weren't letting charities do the testing. They weren't doing universities do the testing. And then we got this great outrage, and this is when we released our report on the 1st of April, um, saying we've got these universities offering. They've got some of the world's leading scientists. They've got some of the materials you need. They've definitely got the machines you need to do the test. Why are you not letting them do the test? And, and what's now emerged is that Public Health England had a literal strategy that they called command and control, believe it or not. It sounds like something straight out of the Soviet Union, where yep. they would decide... Uh, themselves to do all the testing. And, and the reality is it sounded like a good idea. It sounded like you want to try to ensure you've got quality of testing. You do want the test to be accurate, although you can exaggerate the importance of that. A, a testing is just so important that even if some people are told falsely that they have the virus, it's still better just to get them isolating uh, yeah. than it is to risk somebody transmitting. So in, in some ways, more tests is, is really what's key, even if it's not 100% accurate and it's 80 or 90% accurate. Yeah. Um, so, but, but basically, we, we didn't get this broad testing. The government didn't really have a broad testing strategy, and they're only starting to develop that now. So we've got these, these fantastic labs now at Cambridge with some of the UK's leading uh, pharmaceutical companies. That's not going to be set up until early May um, with 30,000 tests a day. Um, and, and still, Public Health England is quite hesitant about getting even smaller labs to do testing. So there's a COVID-19 volunteer test network of these labs that are um, for free testing front uh, 
frontline health workers, um, but yeah. the NHS doesn't want to, and public health doesn't want to formally involve them. It's kind of an informal process at the moment in the testing regime. So I think we've got this, this fundamental issue of centralization and control that has really hampered testing in the UK. And that's meant that we haven't been able to track the cases. We haven't been able to prevent this, this huge outbreak. But right now, it's, it's, it's having two effects. One, it's when we haven't been able to get NH, NHS workers back to the front lines because we'll have to isolate. It's the first issue. Uh, secondly, I think we're seeing this in the aged care front, that um, you're not getting huge testing you need in the aged care facilities, and now there's emerging outbreaks there. And three, it's setting us up particularly badly for being able to withdraw the current um, social distancing uh, measures we've got in place because yeah. what we really want to do is move from these very broad measures uh, where everyone is locked up in their homes more or less to measures that are very targeted uh, where we, we maybe try to shield people who are you know over the age of 70 um, and then we let people get back to work because we know the economy is so and jobs are so essential to saving our lives in the long run anyway yeah. but we can't really do that unless we can spot new outbreaks and we can't spot new outbreaks unless we're testing pretty broadly in the community whenever anyone comes down with a cough or a flu or, or loses their sense of smell or taste as we now know might be a symptom we should be testing very broadly um, and then spotting people who have issues and then using technology uh, to isolate to identify people who've been near the people who now need to isolate and instructing them to do the same. Uh, so obviously that was a bit of a bit of a rant, but I think that's yeah. where we're more or less at with um, with testing. So why do you so why do you think the main reason is, or what do you think the main reason is that's led to this situation where we don't have enough tests? So because uh, from my perspective, I'm not an expert, obviously, on something like this, but I could see the situation in China, and I, def- I definitely this isn't like me trying to pretend I knew more than anyone else, but I definitely had a sense that other people, including key figures in the government and so on, weren't grasping the likelihood of what was going on in Wuhan, in which you could actually see happening in Wuhan in real time, happening across the world and possibly spreading to the UK. It seemed like there was like a lag and there was a constant lag in those early days in terms of appreciating the potential gravity of the situation, which was about to emerge, not just in China, but worldwide. Because it wasn't guaranteed that this would happen, but there were certainly periods when I was looking at... There's a risk, yeah. Yeah, you could see that it wasn't being properly grasped. And even, um, to to take the example of in those early days when we weren't sure how to go about whether to have the suppression method or the other method they're adopting, which was kind of to try and reach peak herd immunity or whatever it was that they were... The delay, but don't prevent an outbreak, yeah. But even at that period, you could see decisions being made, like they allowed the um, Atletico Madrid team and their fans to fly into Liverpool. And I remember watching that thinking, surely there must be some sort of logic behind this. It can't just be not appreciating it. And then a few days later, it was like, okay, we're going into full suppression mode. So why do you yeah. think it, it, why do you think that was? Is it just because they've never faced anything on this scale before, or is it? Well, I, mean, I can't really figure out why that wasn't grasped earlier. If you see what I mean? Yeah. So the, I think the first element here is just pure complacency, particularly in January and February. Um, it just seemed like a distant problem, and, and I'm I'm guilty of that as well. I, I just I don't. There are a lot of things that government ministers are told are about to be the big issue, uh, and they get uh, they're constantly streaming information at them. And they just find it really difficult um, to separate that. And, and, and there's probably not good historical understanding about the, the power of pandemics uh, either. I mean, Bill Gates has now been seen as um, providing a prophecy. And, and in some ways, I guess he did. But that's really what you look at if you think about 
the potential of infectious diseases in, in human history is is huge. Um, we can talk about the Spanish plague, but even in the 1950s, 19, uh, you had the Hong Kong flu um, that killed a million people. We, we've had this time and time again throughout our history. Um, yeah. So if people who kind of paid attention to it uh, were quite aware of it and people who thought about these issues were quite aware of this, but it just seemed like not something such a big issue. But then even, issue in Jan- but the thing about January, that is like even in Italy, so Italy handled it, I mean, I don't like saying that people handled it well or badly because I have no idea how it would have gone if people had handled it any differently, and I'm no expert. Yeah. But and we don't know. We don't know perfectly how this is going to exactly. It could out. be in the case. We won't know for a while. Just, it might have always happened in this way. I don't think we'll know for years. But it, so, for example, at the point at which in Italy they had seen a massive, massive spike, and were saying we've locked down, and that seems to make a slight bit of difference, and everyone else needs to really, really, really take this seriously. It yeah. was still at that point that things like we weren't yet. keeping the pubs so, open was going on and allowing yeah, people yeah. in from Atletico Madrid. So I don't understand how that... So that, that's the moment I, it hit me. So I remember uh, late February, literally the 1st of March, I had my moment when I realised that this was a huge issue that we weren't taking seriously. Um, and that was the point that the cases were piling up in Italy. I think, again, we found excuses for it. We said, you know, Italy's got a lot of old people and that's why they're having this issue. This won't be such an issue here. Oh, we're still doing the testing and tracing, which we weren't doing at the scale necessary. Um, yeah. I, we, just, we just didn't have the state capacity or the state willingness to do it. I also think another issue here is that the UK was ranked very highly in pandemic planning. Yeah. And the reason for that is because we had a pandemic plan. But in many ways, that pandemic plan was based upon a different kind of risk. So it was, it was largely modelled on a kind of 2009 H1N1 type outbreak. And that kind of, the response to that is, is more or less what the, the correct response to a H1N1 outbreak is, is more or less what the government was trying to do, which is they were trying to contain the number of cases in the short run and then delay it so it doesn't overwhelm the healthcare system. And because the death rate is so low for H1N1, it's, it's you know, 0.1%, it's kind of a justifiable strategy. Yeah. But the problem with coronavirus and the, the problem with um, SARS was obviously much worse, like a 14, 15% death rate. But even this, which might be somewhere between, you know, 0.5% and 3%, we don't really know. But in any case, it does clearly have a, a much higher death rate than the flu. Um, you actually need to suppress it. You need to stop the outbreak in the first place. So yeah. just strategically, um, the government was getting bad advice. The ministers were getting bad advice. I think in, in retrospect, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to point fingers, and, and but it's also in some ways important important because if we're going to understand where we've failed here um, to improve next time, we need to understand why the strategy the UK took was very different to the strategy that, say, Australia took. Australia shut, shut its borders uh, very yeah. quickly, um, firstly to China, and that, that notably is against the advice of the World Health Organization. Yeah. Um, Australia thought, you know, we're, we're going to stop this coming into our country, which in retrospect was the right call, firstly to China, and then literally uh, you can't go to Australia now if you're not a citizen. And if you are a citizen and you arrive in Australia, you have to quarantine in a hotel for 14 days. If you arrive back into the UK from a hotspot, you don't have to do anything really. I mean, the advice is everyone should isolate, but not in particular you because you, you came from somewhere with the virus. Yep. Um, and then we also weren't, we weren't ramping up to mass testing because, again, if, if you're presuming it's like the flu, you don't really need to test everyone if they have the flu. Um, you don't because you don't need to do the the, the tracing strategy, um, test and trace strategy on mass. So we, we basically didn't. We thought we had a good strategy. We thought we had the good advice. Um, we uh, we thought we had you know the right science as the government was saying. But in retrospect, we were just applying the wrong model. Um, yeah. I I think it appears to be the failure of of the government. And then when it became apparent, when the modelers 
updated their assumptions um, about this flu, uh, so about this particular outbreak from what are effectively flu-like assumptions to what was coming out of Italy, that's when everything very rapidly changed in mid-March. That was when we heard about a potential half a million deaths and this realisation that the healthcare system would be overwhelmed and the need to um, inscape this lockdown. Um, But in a very similar comparison to... Um, the kind of St. Louis versus Pittsburgh example when it comes to the the, the, the Spanish flu, um, we were probably a little bit too late doing that yeah. uh, in, in retrospect because we were allowing this kind of general community transmission for, for at least a little while. And, and there were a lot of kind of, you know, the stereosonic concerts are a good example here where thousands and thousands of people were, were interacting with each other, where if that had been, you know, discouraged or prevented weeks earlier, perhaps we wouldn't have ended up on the kind of upward trajectory yeah. we've ended up on. But I mean, that's all, it's all past days now. I think the, there's no doubt needs to be a very good review into all this. <laughs> that's partly what's so infuriating about all this though, is that I, I, I obviously the problem with this is as no, almost no one who you're ever going to come across in everyday life is an expert on this. And I obviously am included in that bracket. So I, but I yeah. was watching that and thinking it's it's one of these ironic cases where um non-experts sometimes can be better predictors of something than the experts in the field yeah this is this is this is the classic work on um the now now controversial super forecasters maybe i'm just a super forecaster maybe maybe you're maybe you should set up some (laughs) super forecasting but one of the point of super forecasting is people who are experts in the field are actually worse predictors of what's going to happen. And that's yeah. because once you, I think it's because once you become an expert in a field and you know a lot about it, you, you're very good to talk to. You've, you've, you know, you should absolutely be ultimately guiding the advice. But your disadvantage is that you might end up in a certain model of action um, and you might, your, your biases that you have from the literature that you've read will direct you in a certain way. And I think that's more or less what happens here was the the scientific advice and the ministers were following a certain model and they were just slow to change their their inputs, their assumptions for that model. Um, And as a result of that, uh, we ended up in a kind of worse situation than than we might have otherwise. It was like um, when it was the Imperial, I think it was when the Imperial paper came out. because the, yeah, just, the Imperial what, paper. I think I'll remember this as some, I don't know exactly what sort of lesson it, it's going to, I'm going to be able to take away from this, but definitely the experience of speaking to a lot of people, like members of my family who know quite a lot about experience of illness and how those sort of things can be avoided and how they spread and so on. And looking at the situation, thinking all my instincts are that if what's going on in Italy is happening and it's being replicated in Spain, surely we it has should to be happen doing something. Here, yeah. And then hearing basically experts saying we shouldn't do this, we've got a plan. And I really just thought, okay, I'm going to, this is basically a test. Yeah, the, the, other, whether... the other failed assumption was a lot of it was a behavioural assumption. So the government yeah. assumed, and in, in some ways I think this is a very honourable assumption to make, was that the, the UK population would not accept a shutdown. Uh, that yeah. what was happening, and this was the standard analysis in January and February. Oh, the, the Chinese, the Wuhan, the, the authoritarianism of it. And the British, the British people never accept that. Yeah. I think it's a slight misunderstanding. So the, the British people would not accept being told to do something for purely authoritarian reasons of control. But if yeah. you explain the importance of it, um, the, level, the acceptance of it is just so broad and extraordinary. It's the point where when it was shut down, uh, there was over 90% support. Yeah. Now, you you could still argue from a behavioural perspective, um, although I, I think the general evidence on a lot of behavioural psychology is that it's not replicable and, and it probably shouldn't necessarily be a focus of, of, of government policymaking. 
you could argue that if the government tried to do a shutdown on the 1st of March and just, just did it straight away, um, the sense of shock and the fact that we didn't really have an outbreak here would have meant that people didn't accept it. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I think there were steps the government could have taken earlier. Uh, when when DNRS came down as, I think it was in the first week of March of the case, it was quite clear to me at least um, as a you know novice that this is spreading within Parliament, it's spreading around Westminster, um, and yet the next day oh, uh, yeah. the, the Chancellor delivered the budget in a completely oh full God. chamber of people. That was absolute, That was the most shocking. I could not believe, I literally did about 50 double takes. When I turned in and saw, they'd already said people should be social distancing, and then I saw yeah. completely packed House of Commons. And also yeah. that, given what subsequently transpired of a number of key figures at the top echelons of government coming down with it, I mean, it's just, they're just, that I think just is symptomatic of the fact that people weren't able to grasp on a kind of almost an innate level. It is it is almost like out of a movie, isn't it? You know, it's out yeah. of a pandemic movie. With, it was and like it's the movie. same scenes we saw, when we looked to Florida and we saw those kids still playing on the beach, it's the same kind of effect. Yeah. And I think this is the interesting feature of this is, is everyone kind of came to their own moment of realisation of what was going on. Uh, one of my colleagues was, was, was banging on from, from January about this thing kind of coming out of Wuhan. And yeah. at the time, honestly, he seemed like a bit of a nut job. Like I, 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 it didn't seem viable. And, you know, when I came back on the, on the, the 1st of March, because I normally, you know, I'm a, someone who eats out a lot. I don't normally have a lot of food at home. And I bought, you know, two big bags of food. And I said to my flatmate, I think this is going to be a pretty serious issue pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're going to see the impacts of it quite substantially. He thought I was crazy as well. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's just, everyone has their own moment where they say this is serious. Yeah, um, I, I really like put my, I got lucky in the sense, well, actually, this, that's a terrible description of it, but one of the most, the only good thing that has come out of this for me is that I bought a stockpile of stuff about like middle of February or something cool. and then was really I mean, that's, worried that's for a bit. Early. Yeah, yeah. I was worried for a bit that I would go down amongst everyone who knew it was basically the most bad decision-making, like embarrassing. Well, the, the people who were ironically... It's transpired to be like an accurate prediction of what was going to happen. The, the people who were also quite prepared, admittedly, were the people who were worried about an early Brexit, uh, who yeah, had exactly, already yeah. stocked up on a bit of dried pasta. Kept it over from like Y2K. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, if, if, if you always... This, this is the preppers, you know, if you've always got that bunker. Not that yeah. this calls for and the need for a bunker it's like a nuclear war but uh, if you've got that bunker ready to go and you're, exactly. you're very ready for coronavirus fine so something else i want to so something which is so interesting but also confusing about this situation as well is that i think it is important to hold the government to account on what's happened but a lot of this criticism which we're discussing and making i don't think it necessarily makes sense to level it at the government itself so this has kind of got subsumed, not in the culture wars, but in that whole kind of political Twitter yeah. world. Yeah, this, I've seen so this a lot, yeah. An issue of... So a classic example is I'll think, okay, I'm a bit concerned about the way in which this is being handled. I think more should be done. And then you'll log on to Twitter and you'll see people saying either anyone who criticises the government is basically just hates the government or saying that anyone who's defending the government wants people to die and that the government have been deliberately doing this because Donald yeah, Cummings... Yeah, this idea flying around Twitter that and it's the so, government it's so had a strategy to let people die. It's like, yeah, it's, it's not... Like, it's like, no. you, can't, you can't analyse this situation. If you analyse this situation kind of dispassionately and then you log into the Twitter chat, like chattering online world about what's actually happened, in their opinion, there's such a weird, slightly unnerving disconnect because I think it should be possible to be worried about the response and trying to make sure we hold the government's feet to the fire, for example, without then going down the crazy, just instinctively anti-government, 
anti kind of response line, which some people have adopted, irrespective of what's actually going on. So whenever the government does something which makes sense, they'll still criticise it as just luck. And if you say, I mean, there, there seems to yeah, be this yeah. weird disconnect. So what do you think is going on there? I mean, I, I, what's quite saddening, and, and it's much worse in the States, where people who are, you know, in Trumpistan are still denying that there is even a, a coronavirus outbreak and that it's not just all made up, is with, and obviously the Brexit tensions are lesser than the, the Trump, you know, the, the Democrat tension in the States. But I think we've just seen this extraordinary political tribalism and it is, I think it is genuinely uh, much worse in some ways than I expected. It's, it's genuinely undermining our ability to have necessary debates and discussions about public policy. So I've noticed exactly what you're noticing, which is um, I've been talking a lot about testing, which is very critical of the government. And never have I seen so many people with, you know, pro-EU flags in their um, Twitter bios retweeting me. And if, yeah. they, if they knew what I believed on Brexit, they probably wouldn't all start following me as they, they have been. Yeah. But it's because I'm criticising the government, they think I'm in their tribe automatically about the EU and, and therefore, um, you know, I'm an ally. And then I'm getting a lot of um, criticism from people who would normally like my tweets if there's something uh, pro-Brexit. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it just does reflect this fact that the people applying want to apply their usual uh, framework of understanding politics, the situation. And yeah. then I see a lot of kind of, particularly uh, and sadly from a lot of the Brexit lot, is a lot of kind of underlying nationalism. Yeah. In which I think we're, we're not going to see an acceptance. Uh, and in some ways, UK, the UK's just one has been fantastic. I think, you know, I'm a critic of the NHS and, and the centralised system, but I've never seen the NHS operate so effectively in terms of building up capacity, uh, in terms of um, its willingness to do data analysts, analytics, and that's the main benefit of the NHS is the fact that we have all this centralised data, uh, the, the capacity to rapidly open up hospitals in conjunction with the military um, and the private sector. Uh, I think the NHS is, has not been without fault, but yeah. has been... Um, pretty pretty good at responding to this yeah. uh, and the, the willingness to do a lot of trials as well if you if you, the the capacity to to manage the healthcare resources uh, the fact that we have more um icu beds than than normal i mean that might be an indication that we overestimated the, the potential of the outbreak but you know it's, it's something to work out later in the specifics in yeah. any case we might have overordered on ventilators for example ventilators might be less effective all that stuff has been extraordinary and fantastic uh, when it comes to the NHS, and we should we should congratulate them co- and uh, them despite our political allegiances. Yeah. I think Public Health England has had a pretty pathetic um, time here. I mean, they're the ones who were responsible for preventing the outbreak of infectious diseases, and we had an outbreak of an infectious disease. So, yeah. uh, and quite a substantial one, and thousands of people are dying. And I think we're going to have to seriously look at what Public Health England does, and I think uh, that's where a lot of the blame should lie. I think it's about identifying not just for political reasons, but just for, for very practical policy reasons where things have gone well and where things have gone badly and what systems and what institutions were in place um, that have caused success and caused failure. Um, And I I think if we're not willing to be honest with ourselves um, about that, we're going to be much worse off in in the future and we're going to be really lower the quality um, of debate. So we do have to say Ireland has has did shut down earlier and, and that provided them uh, with a substantial advantage. We do have to say uh, Germany has done substantially more testing and tracing and now they are, appear to be on a lower trajectory. We don't know that for sure yet, but it appears to be so. Uh, we should especially look at the Australias, the Hong Kongs, the Singapores, uh, the South Koreas, as I was saying, who have had um, uh, deaths in a single figure still. Now, they're smaller countries, but they're very 
um, densely populated and they're very close to China and they've clearly done something right. They've clearly got a good strategy here. Yeah. Um, and let's see what we can replicate from there. Uh, America has done awfully, um, really badly. Like their, their inability uh, mixed in with the politics of it all to prevent and track an outbreak is, is a failure at every level um, yeah. within their system. So I think it's just about understanding the failure and the successes and not not being having putting aside your usual frames yeah, um, yeah. as much as you can. And that's difficult. It's really difficult for people. But you have to, as much as you can, put aside your usual biases. Yeah, that's definitely true. I, it'll be interesting to see what the longer-term political and kind of cultural effects of this yeah. will be as well. So, for yeah. example, even... Um, I mean, if you look at, for example, the views, attitudes towards the government, let's say, it my instinct is that actually on something like this, so for, on this podcast, we've been quite critical of the government's response. But at the same time, that takes place within a wider kind of outlook we've got, which is probably less critical of the government on a kind of instinctive level than a lot of the other commentators who you'll hear talking yeah. about most other political issues. So in a way that actually kind of brings the two sides together in the sense that if you generally find it irritating if people's default response on any given issue is just to be really anti-establishment and really anti-governmental, you can still see a need to hold the government to account on this issue. Yeah. And a lot of people who would instinctively be, I mean, if you're really hardcore ideologically just anti-establishment, you hate the government, you're really conspiratorial all the time, you're probably going to keep banging on along those lines. But that's going to alienate so many other people who see the need to work together with people to try and get along as a nation, I guess, and overcome this in kind of as one if you see, and I have that feeling that that's what's happening there's like a, almost like a national government at the moment it seems like it's not political it's expect, spending so much in terms of almost in a redistributive way which yeah. is rare for a conservative government um the whole way they're discussing things is along the lines of the NHS is unbelievably important so a lot of the concerns of the people who are against this government now probably have been allayed in some way from this crisis so actually it's probably going to be quite unifying in some ways but then again, the culture wars will probably yeah. still. I mean, the, the culture war that exists on Twitter does not exist in yeah. in the broader broader population. I mean, the level of support for the government is is extremely high. I mean, the fact that the Tories are on what fifty four, fifty five percent primary vote, sixty seven percent of people approve the way uh, things are going. Those yeah. are those are pretty high numbers, and it's partly because you have a bit of wartime unity kind of effect here where, where people do want to unite around the government and do want to talk about the success. I, and I think that's very important. I, I think um, unity at this time is is essential if we're going to be able to psychologically overcome the challenges we face. That, as I said, that can't get in the way of the necessary constructive criticism of the government's response. Um, yeah. Of all people, I think Keir Starmer's probably got the tone about right on this, which is to say, you know, we're going to I'm not saying he's going to execute this perfectly, but he said he, he's going to criticise the government where he thinks they're doing things wrong. And that's practically how the Westminster system is supposed to work always, yeah. right? It's, it's supposed to be constructive criticism and not political point scoring. Um, and I think it's very, it's becoming increasingly apparent that there's a lot of people on Twitter who want to score political points. Yeah. And there's rel- for both sides, either for the government or against the government, and there's relatively few people who are uh, willing to analyze the situation um, from, from actually trying to achieve something here or trying to improve the outcome. Yeah, and I think especially political point scoring in the context of this issue is going to alienate so many more people than the people who well, are Exactly. Yeah. Politically, it's the right choice for Labour as well. Yeah. They, they need to um, 
the, the fact that Corbyn came out and, you know, declared that the economic response was a vindication of his views, like lines at supermarkets and everyone being stuck indoors and millions of people losing their jobs is, you know, what, what Labour socialism really meant. Uh, I think it's also important pathetic. to wait and see with this because I, so yeah, as in like, one possible difference between me and you is I really don't have a strong view on whether a redistribu- more redistributed system is good or bad. I just don't feel like I've ever been able to predict accurately what would happen if you had a system like that or you didn't. But something which I have found a bit disconcerting is how there was a really, really big, basically emergency bailout, more or less, of the nation, which is possibly going to push us into some sort of massive recession or depression. Who knows? And a large part of the commentary responded to that saying, this is great. This is what we've always wanted to happen. And it shows it's always been a viable option, which I I, I personally don't know if that's true or not. But it seems like a really strange response. Well, it is is strange because... What the government is doing is not nationalising the economy and taking control of the means of production or, or changing the nature of how workplaces operate to put employees on boards. It's a very specific set of policies that, although, you know, it's like what the left wanted in some ways was just huge spending and now they've got huge spending, they're happy. It's like, well, let's look at what they're spending all this money on. Um, yeah. It's to freeze the economy. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily going to be as successful as the government hopes, um, but it's certainly something, an admirable goal right now and a quite a unique goal, which is what we're trying to do with the job retention scheme, for example, for example, is encourage businesses just to pause their operations for as long as possible, for long the staff and pay them 80% of their wages. But that's not, it's not like the same as uh, any meaningful claim to what labor has ever called for it doesn't it's just not something you would normally do you don't you don't normally want the government to pay people 80 percent of their wage not to work yeah this is just such a unique situation it's not and it's it's not a vindication i think of of anyone's philosophy particularly i mean I, i see most people on the right have been more than willing to accept it because we accept that there is a strong role for government during emergencies and and pandemics are really tick every box in that respect and the government needs to is effectively acting as an insurer of last resort since um, we can't expect businesses to be able to insure for this kind of long-tail risk um, yeah. and, and therefore they're acting appropriately to, to try to keep the economy together and, and um, freeze it. Uh, we can talk separately about the success or failure of that and I think we will be for a long time. Um, but that doesn't seem to be a vindication of a, a different form of capitalism or, or necessarily suggestive of what should happen uh, when this is over. And I think a lot of people have been very quick um, to claim that this, particularly those, as you've said on the left, are very quick to claim that this is proves everything they thought in the first place, which just seems like a totally ridiculous claim to make because yeah. nobody ever denied the role for government in a national emergency. So, yeah. so they're, they're fighting against this boogeyman that doesn't exist of, of some like libertarian who says the government shouldn't exist uh, and should never spend any money on anything, even in a pandemic. It's like that. I just don't know who that person is. Like, yeah. that's something that's not there. The, um, I we could keep talking about this for ages, but I want to try and keep it less than an hour because otherwise we could literally go on for in, indefinitely. But, I'd enjoy it. I don't. I don't know if you're. If you're. Uh, I mean, it is just such a crazy. It's such a crazy thing that is almost. Like, I could just talk about. Yeah. This. yeah. I mean, I thought. I thought for years the world was getting exciting. Again, politics was cool. We had this Brexit and this Trump stuff. Yeah. Um, and now it's you know we might look back on this as something that's not that big a deal, but I doubt that. I think this is no. I think we uh, will. truly our the, the end of history has not come. You know, history yeah. keeps and keeps and. You know, thrashing into our faces. Yeah. So one final question then. What do you think 
I mean, it's kind of about 50 questions in one, but what would you say might be the kind of general longer-term consequences of this? Yeah, consequences. I mean, I think, I, I honestly, I think we don't know, and anyone who claims to know what comes next yeah. um, is is absolutely kidding themselves and anyone yeah. who claims a certainty and even in the best of times when things are going normal normal anyone who claims you know well this is how much economic there were, there were a lot of people last year who told us how much economic growth we were going to have this year yeah. i mean the modeling the modelers and the modeling is just is always uh guesswork at best and and absolutely doesn't depend on any potential extreme events yeah um in terms of you can probably think about a few different areas in terms of where i think things are going to go um so first of all i think uh, it's going to be a while before we, we reach normality. And I don't even think there is, things will not be the same in any way when this is over as they were before. If you just think in economic terms, yeah. um, the act of freezing the economy or, or shutting down the economy uh, in itself will change what the economy economic structure is afterwards. Uh, so the kind of things we do and the, the way the economy operates or even just what people want, I think, you know, in the micro level it's going to be a lot more use of Zoom for online meetings because people have yeah. gotten used to that. There's going to be a lot more online supermarket ordering in the future because that's something people have learned to do. I think uh, there's probably going to be a bit less, a lot less travel for a while, um, uh, particularly internationally. You know, you could say you could make a prediction that people are going to travel more domestically for a while, or or seem likely and, and reasonable assumptions to make yeah. uh, from a geostrategic perspective. I think right now uh, China's getting. A bit of a lack of attention. Yeah. I think that's in- intentional. Even Donald Trump has stopped calling it the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus, yeah. and he now calls it the, the invisible disease. And that's because right now the world needs China's manufacturing ability. We need their masks. We need yeah. um, their testing uh, reagent development. We know there's lots of things we now need from China. But I think there's going to have to be after this. And this is something that doesn't feel instinctively comfortable for me to say as somebody who is a big free trader and a big free marketer, there's going to have, be, have to be a lot more diversification in, in our supply chains. And um, I think the, there's the dependence on China, something uh, for a lot of our manufacturing is, is going to have to be um, not reconsidered in the entirety, but something that's going to have to be thought about. What, what do we need domestically? Um, yeah. What can't we do? We now know, you know, there's something I, I would I would say would be an unlikely event, but now we know this can happen where the, where yeah. the order's shut and there's certain things we can't buy of that we want to buy. So what, what domestic, what, you know, backup domestic capacity do we need? Do we need, you know, mothballed factories that can make masks by the, by the millions? Um, so I think there's going to have to be some economic questions there and, and thinking there about specific things we, we will need to keep operating. Um, I, I, I don't really know what way things are going to go in terms of the role of government. I, I think we're going to be... The tendency after an emergency is, at a time of emergency or a big event, is that the government grows and it never really recedes. Yeah. I can't see the government receding um, back to where it was beforehand. I, I think it's against my best instincts. It's going to stay relatively big and, and continue spending a lot. That said, we're already on that trajectory anyway. The government's already been growing for you know hundred years. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to do a lot more pandemic planning in the future. I yeah. We're, going to, we're not going to make the same mistakes we've made before. Um. It might as well shine a light on some of those kind of international organizations like the World Health Organization. So just reading about that, I mean, some of the stuff which has come out about the WHO, which has been getting kind of scrutiny in the background, but now it's been put under the spotlight properly. And there are a lot of organizations like this that that China has um, been increasing their influence in over the years. And and in some ways, this is really geostrategically a failure of American leadership. I mean, 
I, I, I love a powerful America. Um, that's kind of been my bias for, for a long time. And I love a powerful America because I want a liberal democratic country, um, even an imperfect one in so many ways, trying to lead the world. And right now we, we really don't have um, world leadership, global leadership, and that's created a vacuum that, that China's trying to step its way into, as we've seen them trying to do their, you know, um, sending doctors to Northern Italy and, and masks to New York and ventilators and whatever else. And, you know, good on them. We can't ignore the fact at the same time that this this was a virus that came out of China because of the failure to shut down uh, wet markets that are now reportedly reopening, which is just absolutely shocking. And then at the same time, the, the Chinese authorities uh, hit the virus in the world in a number of key weeks and allowed around Chinese New Year celebration, 5 million people, uh, potentially thousands of carriers of the virus to leave Wuhan and then spread throughout the world. So uh, we can thank them for their help in the short run, but I think we, if we're going to do some some analysis with this, there's definitely uh, some changes that need to be made in that respect. Yeah, even um, like just the, like if you look at the kind of corruption allegations, for want of a better term, the, against the WHO, some of the stuff which has been going on there, so you know that they spent more on expenses in terms of flights and travel and accommodation than they spent on AIDS, TB and malaria, I think it was, combined for a number of years in the WHO. Yeah. And it, people were writing about Thank goodness for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation actually dealing with global issues. But it's, just, um, it's absolutely incredible. As in, even unrelated to this pandemic, the fact that an organisation like that can get away with doing something. And look, and we know, we know the, the head of the World Health Organization was put there after Chinese lobbying. And, uh, and we, that we saw Dr. that. Dr. Tedros. And he, he, he appointed, you know, appointed Mugabe as a goodwill ambassador. Yeah, and we, saw, we got... saw what happened when you try to ask about Taiwan. Um, yeah. Suddenly the, the Skype call stops working and then he asks you to ask the next question. <laughs> I just yeah, think that's I, such I think a it strange. Is, it's so it is strange. A I mean, I'm not of the view that we should suddenly withdraw funding for the World Health Organization because I think it's going to be quite important. And yeah. I am genuinely scared about what happens when this virus spreads in countries that don't have, um, you know, we, we, we haven't handled this perfectly, but at least we have the ability um, to deal with this. We have the economic capacity to, to withstand a bit of a huge shock to our economy. Um, I really worry about what's currently going on in the slums of India as, as we're seeing the first cases pop up. Yeah. Um, and we know that there's barely any testing going on so that there could be you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of cases already. We know this spreads pretty quickly. So that's yeah. what that's what really scares me. And that's something the World Health Organization should have the infrastructure in place um, and, and really probably more so than in the West does have infrastructure in place on the ground to do that, really yeah. that key work. So I think for now the WHO is going to be quite important, but it's going to be an institution that's uh, going to have to be thought about. Yeah. Um, so I think that's something in the long run. I mean, there's... The future is so hard to predict and there's so much going on and there's so many ways this could, this could go right now. So I, I think we've got to be hesitant about making any kind of certain, anything kind of certain at the moment Definitely. Um, when it comes to the future. Um, all right, great. That's really so interesting. And thanks so much thanks for having me.